All right, go ahead and be seated. I won't have you stand again for the reading of the text. Um, if you're new this morning and you weren't warned, um, now you're warned. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so today is, is uh, you know, I'm going to finish my part in presenting the fundamentals of biblical marriage. And then today the Druids, uh, Stephen Lacey, will begin uh, their part in what we hope is the more practical uh, section during the discipleship hour. And then next Sunday, I'm going to get back into Matthew chapter 19. I promise we will finish uh, the book of Matthew someday. Uh, but uh, the things get very intense uh, from chapter 19 to the rest of uh, the, the gospel. So we want to make sure that we address those things and deal with the text thoroughly and uh, sufficiently. Um, but yeah, this morning uh, we are in 1 Corinthians 7 to talk about uh, how sex ought to be, uh, how ought to be in marriage. Now, this is a dangerous uh, subject, probably because it's biblical. And so it's my opportunity to bless those who agree with the scriptures and to offend those who do not. Um, and I don't ever seek to offend. It's, it's my intention. It's always my intention. It's my responsibility to simply be an extension of the text and to teach what it says. Um, it's not my job to make you like it. Uh, it's, it's my job to teach you, to instruct you, to encourage you. Uh, that's what I'm going to do this morning. I'm going to teach the text as it stands, uh, and I'm going to teach it like I always teach the text of Scripture, so that if you have a problem, uh, your problem will be with the text. How's that? Okay. And, uh, you know, going into this, I know that uh, there's people that have had bad experiences with this. I don't deny any of that, and I think it's evil. And there's people that have had a good experience with this, and so each of them have a different response to the text of Scripture. Uh, but the text of Scripture is what it is. It's from God. Uh, he knows what's best. Uh, he knows what's right, uh, even when we've done what's wrong. Correct? Okay. So that's where we're at. So how ought sex to be? Uh, well, how God says it should be. Okay. It is typically understood that couples uh, fight primarily about three things, money, children, and sex. So, uh, you know, I, I put out the warning. I said, I'm going to keep it as PG as possible. Really, what I'm going to do is I'm going to say sex a lot. Okay, um, I hope that your children don't cause you too much grief over this. Okay, um, so why do couples quarrel over sex? I don't know. You all know why you fight over it. Uh, I've met with hundreds of couples <laughs> in this regard, and I don't have time to list all the reasons that people fight over it. But knock it off. Okay, <laughs> it's sad, really, because you know God created sex. He obviously intended it to be enjoyable, exciting, intimate, playful, loving, respectful, mutually fulfilling. Uh, if you don't believe that, you try reading the Song of Solomon. And, and don't read it out of, what translation is that, Roger? See, he was offended. He left already. Unbelievable. Did Janice go with him? <laughs> we have a special room for people like that. Yeah. There's a translation out there that nobody should read, but it, it writes the Song of Solomon as an allegory, and the, the, 
the, the letters of the beloved are in red as if it's Jesus. Do you know how gross that is? If you read the text that way, give me a break. The biblical record is about a couple who live like they're in their honeymoon every day, everywhere they go, sneaking away to enjoy one another's bodies. And it wasn't for the purpose of having babies. They were enjoying one another sexually for the sake of enjoying one another sexually as God intended. God designed sex and the things associated with it to, of course, be confined to the marriage. That's the only place that it can be beautiful, that it can be right, where it's safe, fulfilling, enjoyable. At least that's what it should be. And any sexual activity, of course, outside of marriage is, is fornication. Um, it's immoral sex. It's not safe. It's not fulfilling. In fact, it's dangerous. Scripture says that when you have sex outside of marriage, you sin against your own body, 1 Corinthians 6.18. So anyway, sex outside of marriage is another matter. Our subject this morning is how sex ought to be in marriage. Um, you know, sex is one of my favorite subjects because it's one of my favorite activities. Uh, God designed me that way. And I know that many in here uh, agree with me. You may not talk about it as much as I do, uh, but it's true. And according to God's word, Christians should be very active in the bedroom, not in order to have babies, but in order to enjoy one another. Okay? Because babies are responsibility of marriage, uh, they, of course, will be a natural product of intimacy in the marriage, but babies are not the real objective behind sex. If babies are the real purpose behind sex, we should only be en engaging in sex in that window of ovulation, and then we should stop as soon as menopause begins, but we don't do that, and we shouldn't as married people because God didn't design us that way. He didn't uh, make it that way. Okay? We should be participating in this wonderful thing called sex in order to bless our spouse, in order to enjoy one another. That should be the, the intent. So I've said all of that. Now I have to give authority to it. So if you have your Bibles open, uh, you can read with me 1 Corinthians 7, 1 through 5. I would just read Song of Solomon to you, but it's not PG, <laughs> to be honest. And in fact, if you're not married, I'm not sure you should read Song of Solomon, okay? So Paul says, Now concerning the things of which you wrote to me, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. Nevertheless, because of sexual morality, let each man have his own wife and let each woman have her own husband. Let the husband render to his wife the affection due her and likewise also the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another, except with consent, for a time that you may give yourselves to fasting and prayer, and come together again, so that Satan does not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. There's our text. All right, fun times. Let's, let's go back to the beginning. Let's give some historical context. Let's see what is happening so Paul says, now concerning the things of which you wrote to me, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. Now, we don't know, you know exactly how much correspondence there was between Paul and the Corinthian church, but there was a considerable amount. Uh, while Paul was you know, pastoring in Ephesus, letters were being sent back and forth between them. We learned in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, 9, that Paul had actually written a letter to the Corinthians 
prior to the one that we now have in our Bibles as 1 Corinthians, okay? where he instructed them not to keep company with sexually immoral people. Now, for the Lord's own reasons, we do not have that letter, okay? probably because uh, it would be a redundancy to what we do have. And the content of that letter was actually clarified here in this letter, both in chapter 5 and now in chapter 7. So Paul, here in chapter 7, is again uh, responding to something they wrote to him regarding marriage and sex. Okay, and if you go through 1 Corinthians, Paul mentions many times, now concerning, now concerning what he's doing is they wrote him about this particular issue and he's addressing it, chapter by chapter by chapter in 1 Corinthians. Okay? So in the, their letter, they made an assertion about sex and they were looking for confirmation from Paul. The assertion was this, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. Really? Paul's response to this indicates that they meant to say that it was even good for a married man to abstain from touching his wife. What? Yeah. Now, by the word touch, he's using a euphemism for, for intercourse, for sex. Paul was all about euphemisms, okay? It is better then, across the board, for all men, even married men, to abstain from sex with their wives. That's what they're essentially saying. Apparently, this assertion comes from some confusion regarding sex itself, that sex, the activity itself, is for some reason bad, that it's, it's bad. That's probably a reaction to the sexually deviant culture of Corinth, concluding that because sex is what it is in Corinth, it must all be bad. Now, sex in Corinth was bad, bad, historically bad, bad. But you see, the church has also been guilty of that same thought at various times throughout history. When you read the early fathers of the church, um, Tertullian, Chrysostom, um, all those guys, you realize every one of them are monks. They do not have good things to say about sex. Why do you think that is? It's because they're ascetics. That's why. And so they have a low view of marriage, and they have a low view of sex. It's not biblical. Okay? The monasticism didn't end soon enough in church history. Not soon enough. Okay? Yeah. So the church has carried this on. They've had a negative view of sex. Uh, even at times when young couples enter into marriage with a negative view of sex. So guess what happens? They end up in my office. And they're confused. And they don't understand. They want to, but they kind of shouldn't. Maybe they should only do it with the intention of having babies. So we should take a test and make sure that we're just ovulating. That's insane. So real quick, let's look at the historical context of Corinth that, that might have influenced their thinking. Um, and we could look at social media and movies and everything else in our culture that would also create a negative uh, view in our thinking. But because we're teaching the text of Scripture, let's look at the historical context here. Now, outside of Corinth and above the city was uh, a mountain called the Acrocorinth, and on top was the temple of Aphrodite. That's the Acrocorinth there, and in the foreground is some stuff from uh, the ancient city Corinth. Dedicated to the, the temple there of Aphrodite was a, a thousand female temple prostitutes, shrine prostitutes, ritual prostitutes is what they're called who, especially during the festival of Aphrodite, would flood the city and offer ritual sex for all who wanted the goddess to bless or make fertile 
their herds, flocks, and fields, and even the womb of their wife. Crazy. That's normative in Corinth. And, and you know, this form of idolatry, it's actually found throughout all of the Old Testament, as far as back as Genesis 38, where Tamar, the daughter-in-law of Judah, disguised herself as a ritual prostitute to entice Judah, her father-in-law. Judah referred to her in the Hebrew as a Kadesha, a temple prostitute, Genesis 38, 21. There were also male ritual prostitutes throughout the Old Testament and in Corinth, but these were for the homosexual. And added to the depravity of Corinth were the the common prostitutes. So you had ritual religious prostitutes, then you had common prostitutes, and they were ever so common in that city. It was a sailor's destination, by the way, which were, they were everywhere. But there were also what was called the heteri, which were these, uh, I mean, how do you say high-class prostitutes? And these women were educated in culture, music, literature. These were like, you know, like escort types to entertain the wealthy, politicians and things like that. They're all over D.C. Uh, The Greeks of Corinth, understand, engaged in all of these things, both ritually and hedonistically. But it's all immoral. It's all immoral. And the recent converts to Christ in the church of Corinth had recently practiced all of those things. They had recently abandoned that culture for life in Christ. Imagine. How many questions do you think they have? Just read 1 Corinthians. Okay? The church was totally messed up. Okay? They needed long-term, thorough discipleship. Okay? Because their thinking was so wrapped up, so contaminated and distorted by their culture, that the renewing of their mind was absolutely essential. As it is, is ours. Yeah. And out of that, some had assumed, most likely because of Satan's corruption of sex in the culture, that sex itself was better just left behind then, even in marriage. And of course, this needed to be cleared up for the people of God in Paul's day, just as it does in our day. You see, and you know, that every good thing God created is corrupted by man and by the enemy of our souls. Have you noticed that? And it's not uncommon for man to react to corruption and just abstain from what God meant as a blessing. But God doesn't want that, okay? So Paul, under the direction of the Holy Spirit, he speaks to this this whole problem. He says, nevertheless, because of sexual immorality, let each man have his own wife and let each woman have her own husband. Another euphemism, okay? Let each man have... And let each woman have means to have their spouse sexually. Okay? It doesn't mean let every man, let every woman get married, as some have suggested. Now, Paul has already used this euphemism in regard to intercourse in 1 Corinthians 5, when he said that a, a man has his father's wife. Gross. Okay, a man was having sex with his stepmother. Remember, there's problems in Corinth. And here in chapter 7, uh, Paul is referring to the same thing. He's talking about sex. And here it's sex in the marriage is held in contrast to sex outside the marriage. Sex in marriage is holy. Sex outside of marriage is immoral. It's an affront to God, a corruption of what is, is good and holy. So the Corinthians, it's becoming more clear here, we're saying because of sexual morality out there in the world, in the culture, we should abstain from it in marriage. And Paul says, no. 
No, it's because of sexual morality out there that you should be having sex inside your marriage. You know, sec- sexual immorality in the world is not the only reason, of course, that married couples should be having sex, but it's a really good reason, which Paul is going to discuss later. Another thing is the word have, let every man have, let every woman have, is in the imperative form. Now, I've said imperative from the pulpit a million times. Um, it means a command, okay? It's no different than any other command in Scripture when the verb form is in the, the imperative, okay? So, let every man have, is, it's not a suggestion, uh, it's a command. This is to be a regular part of the marriage, okay? Sex should be practiced in the marriage, not just for having kids, as the context is going to make abundantly clear. He says, let the husband render to his wife the affection due her, and likewise also the wife to her husband. Now, let the husband render, let the wife render due affection. The verb render is also in the imperative form, which reinforces the obligation of sex in marriage. The the word render means to give or do something in fulfillment of an obligation. And the word do speaks of the obligation or debt owed. The husband, husbands, you are indebted to your wife. And the wife, wives, you are indebted to your husband. You are mutually obligated to each other. You are. Well, the question is, who assigned this debt to the husband and to the wife? Well, it's not me, and it ain't Paul, okay? It's the Lord. He, he instituted He ratified their debt to one another when they entered into the covenant of marriage. When you said, when I said, I do, we indebted ourselves to our spouse with the obligation of fulfilling them sexually. Now, there's a host of other things, too, that we're responsible for, but this is our context. We indebted ourselves. That's going to be stated more emphatically in a minute. So we might say that the husband is the caretaker, the the steward of his wife's sexual needs, and the wife is the caretaker, the steward of her husband's sexual needs. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Our culture loves this. You know, in, in our culture of independence, of absolute autonomy, of my body, my choice, with other foolish and demonic slogans. You know, God's people, they need to be reminded that when they enter into marriage, they're giving charge of their body over to their spouse. Is that what the text says? Absolutely it does. There's nothing confusing about this section of Scripture. Uh, It seems like the more clear, the more controversial these days. So in the marriage covenant, we surrender to our spouse authority over our own body in order to fulfill them sexually. Your body's yielded to your spouse. It's placed under their authority for that purpose. Now, that, of course, makes some people very, very nervous. And I, and I understand why. I've, I've met with the couples. Okay? People can be absolutely whatever. But remember, every good thing that God has given us to enjoy has been corrupted. by Satan, by us. And just because it's been corrupted does not mean we reject what God has ordained, the way that he's designed things. It's our duty before God to live according to his design, according to his intent. And because of the, the nature of godly marriage, 
this whole issue of sex in marriage must fall under the instruction of Ephesians 5.22 through 33. Wives must submit to their own husbands in sex, and husbands must love their wives in the same. When, when that becomes the way that we engage in this matter, sex becomes holy. It becomes fulfilling. Okay? Wives must evaluate their heart in regard to intimacy in light of Ephesians 5.22, and husbands must evaluate their heart in regard to intimacy in light of Ephesians 5.25. Submission cannot reject or abstain, and love cannot coerce or manipulate. So wives, are you rendering to your husband the affection owed to them and submission to him? And husbands, are you rendering to your wife the affection owed to her and love for her? Don't make me ask your spouse. Do not deprive one another, it's an imperative, except with consent for a time that you may give yourselves to fasting and prayer and come together again so that Satan does not tempt you because of your lack of self control. Do not deprive. This goes back to rendering and owing. The word deprive means to not defraud another of what rightly belongs to them. Do you think Paul's trying to make a point? Three words that, that fit into the exact same context. So Christian couples are forbidden to deprive their spouse of the affection that God has granted to them. We're not permitted to refuse them, the affection due them. It is sinful. It's destructive. But there is an exception to the rule. There are others, but under normal, normal circumstances, this is the exception. But there's a protocol for it. The only time we're permitted to abstain is when we get our spouse's consent. Now that is extremely backwards. Because usually, never mind, I'm not even going to go there with it. <laughs> In order to abstain, Paul is saying, we have to first get our spouse's consent, but not just for any reason. We are not permitted to deprive our spouse of the affection due them because we're upset with them. How unreasonable is that? Well, Scripture requires that we forgive. Punishing our spouse by withholding intimacy is an ungodly way of demonstrating that we are bitter and unforgiving. Abstinence is not permissible because I just don't feel like it. Again, for the second, third, and fourth time. That's like saying, because you don't feel like loving God right now, you're just not going to love him. Our feelings are really irrelevant in the context of obeying the scriptures. Okay? You being tired over and over and over does not qualify for abstaining. Save your energy. Make time. And besides, how much energy does sex require? What are you doing? Save enough for your spouse. Having a headache every night doesn't cut it. You know, if you have a chronic headache that just happens to come every night when your spouse is coming on to you, come on to them when you don't have a headache. Love them with your body. I have a joke about that, but I'm not going to say it. I'll tell you later. Some people abstain because they don't like the way their spouse is when they have sex. They don't like the way their spouse is into it. Or they don't like how their spouse isn't into it. And so they, they drift apart and neither person's needs are met. We are not permitted to abstain for those reasons. Our bodies should be available to our spouse because God has given our body to our spouse. So for what reason can we abstain? We're permitted to abstain from sex with our spouse for the purpose of fasting and prayer. How many of you fast and pray on a regular basis? Then what should you be doing on a regular basis? Heathens. But we can only do this 
because our body belongs to our spouse after we get the permission to abstain. Yes, their permission is required for abstinence. The purpose of fasting is to give the Lord your full attention while you pray and seek his face on behalf of someone else or for wisdom or direction. Sex can be a distraction. It can be a competing affection that distorts our attention in the midst of fasting. And so abstaining from that pleasure for a time can focus our attention on Christ, okay? But we must gain our spouse's permission. And because your wife, your husband has authority over your body, they get to set parameters on the duration of your fast. So if you say to your husband or wife, I was hoping to fast for this reason or the other, would you be okay if I abstain from intimacy for the next three days? Your spouse has the right to say yes, no, or I'll allow two days and then you're mine again. That's how that works practically. Before I fast, I do go to my wife. I don't want to go to my wife and say that, but I go to my wife and I say, I'd like to fast for the next three or four days. May I abstain? Paul is saying that under normal circumstances, intimacy with your spouse is the priority. It should be a regular part of your marriage. Now, reasonably speaking, Paul is not saying that you have to have sex every day with your spouse, okay? I wish he did, but he didn't, okay? (laughs) Jesus is coming back first, brother. (laughs) The point of all this, and I'll address age just quickly. You, every one of you, should be monitoring the sexual needs of your spouse and trying to meet those needs with your body for their sake and for the sake of your marriage. Younger couples, this may require more of your attention, okay? Older couples, well, I meet with a lot of older couples, okay? I thought things would slow down. Sometimes it doesn't. Sometimes it does. But that's the point. As you grow old together, you should be having sex more because you should be arguing less about it. Because as you conform to Christ and to the scriptures, that stuff should be going away, and there should be more harmonic resonance going on right? It's true. But as you get old or as you're young, it doesn't matter. Whatever stage you're in, you should be monitoring the needs of your spouse. And whatever the needs they have, you should be doing your best to fulfill it, okay? Loving your spouse with your body, rendering to them the affection that God has granted to them by way of the marriage covenant. The Holy Spirit says, do not deprive your spouse except with their consent for a time in order to fast and pray. I wonder how much fasting and praying is going to begin now. So this is under normal circumstances. You know, there are times when it's unloving, unreasonable, ungodly to demand affection. Like, you know, medical reasons. Uh, Because of a medical condition, a a procedure, a surgery, (laughs) delivering a baby. I don't think most women that have just recently had a natural delivery are real interested in sex. Ladies, is that your first priority? or after a C-section. You know, if your spouse has the flu or something, nasty virus, it would would be reasonable to abstain. If your spouse has just lost a loved one, maybe you shouldn't be so demanding for your your conjugal rights. How many of you guys have heard of conjugal rights? It's It's an old school way of saying that you have rights to your spouse in this context. Um, Conjugation, one of those fun old phrases. Mike Strobach has a hilarious story about conjugal rights. I'll let him tell it. But there, there are, I get a lot of my best jokes from Dr. Strobach. <laughs> but there are a host of ways that couples punish each other by abstaining from sex, which is simply evil and it's destructive. How so? Paul continues in the text 
this way. He says, after a time of fasting and prayer, come together again. What do you think he means? Conjugally, okay? That is in the bedroom. So that Satan does not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. If one or the other person in the marriage withholds their body from their spouse, they are putting a stumbling block in front of their spouse that makes them vulnerable to satanic temptation. That's what Paul is saying, okay? Simply put, if you withhold your body from your spouse, you are assisting the devil in the destruction of your marriage. That's what you're doing. You're batting for the other team. You're assisting the enemy of your soul, okay? God loves your marriage. He's assigned things for your marriage that will cause it to thrive. Satan hates your marriage. He wants to bring it to ruin. And as Genesis 3 says, he's the most cunning of all of God's creation. He knows exactly how to do it and make you feel justified helping him. He knows how to do that. He's really good at it. He'll give you every reason why you should withhold your affection, why your spouse doesn't deserve it. And when your spouse withholds from you, Satan will give you every reason to justify your wandering eyes your desire for another person's attention, to click on that image, to get back at your spouse. He will help you justify all of those things. He'll help you manipulate your spouse, shame them, guilt them, isolate them. He's got one trick after another. He has plan A, B, C, and D. If you do this, he'll counter it with that. He's the master of division and divorce. He lusts for your loneliness, for your pain. Do not help him. Do not fall for his tricks, okay? It will be destructive. So please understand, if you withhold your body from your spouse, you will make them feel unloved by you, rejected, unaffirmed. Many spouses make their their spouse, their husband, their wife feel unattractive, unworthy. You will hurt them. You will be the cause of loneliness in your marriage, and that will hurt both of you, okay? Get over yourself and render the affection that is due your spouse. Love them with your body, Yield affection to them. Now, I understand that men and women are different when it comes to sex, even if both desire sex for different reasons, okay? If you research all that's happened in Western culture because of the sexualizing our culture, women are becoming more like men. It's gross, okay? But even as women now are desiring sex, not as much as men, typically, Um, the motives for it are different than men. So there's still this huge difference between us, even though it's it's happening more and being desired more. But as that happens, more problems arise. I I understand that. I meet with couples. It's, It's troubling, okay? But what we have to understand as the people of God is that a lot of those difference, differences between us have to do with how God has made the genders, We have to understand that. One is not better than the other. One is not right and the other wrong. God created the differences between the sexes, so those differences are good in themselves. Those differences can be used sinfully, but there's nothing wrong with the differences. And sin will, of course, you know, contaminate everything a sinner does, but God has given us his word, okay, so that we can minimize sin in our marriage and bring glory to God. Now, I, I considered discussing, you know, all of the, the, the you know, the, the gender stereotypes, but they're actually irrelevant to what the scripture says, aren't they? In the text, does the Holy Spirit find it necessary to address the, the, the gender stereotypes? It's not in the passage. And I think the reason sometimes they're not helpful 
is because they can be used as a way to excuse one person and condemn another. And that's not okay. okay. Paul has, in the text, dealt equally with the genders, and God expects both genders to live according to his word. Amen? You know, if you parse out all of those verses, it's equally tit for tat for the genders. So God expects the same thing from both of us, okay? From both genders. Let me just address some problems. And these are problems that I am aware of because of just meeting with so many people. Uh, Total abstinence. When I meet with a couple that hasn't had sex for two weeks and they're in their 30s or 40s, I get really concerned. But when it's months, something extremely ungodly is going on in the marriage. You must refer to this passage of scripture. Or conditional affection. Conditional affection. Is that in the text? It's not. Our affection is due them. It must be rendered to them. God has granted it to them. To, to do any of these others, total abstinence, conditional affection, it's, it's demoralizing, it's dehumanizing, it's, it's evil. Anyone who is willing, unwilling to render affection to their spouse because they have no desire for sex is, is a selfish person and they're an advocate for the devil. Someone who abstains because they want to permanently punish their spouse because of something they've done, that's not Christian. Jesus said that if you do not forgive your brother or your sister from your heart, my Father in heaven will not forgive you. Sex is not a place to punish your spouse. And I know some people are thinking, well, that's something that women do. No, it's not. I don't know how men do it, but they do it all the time. Okay? It's, it's going from both sides. And someone who only agrees to have sex with their spouse so they can manipulate them, they're a gross human being. It's ugly, ugly. God has granted it to our spouse for their sake. And when the two come together as God intended, it ends up being mutually fulfilling. It's beneficial to the overall relationship. The challenges of intimacy in the marriage can only be resolved by our intentional effort to take the Lord at his word and to obey his instruction. If you know the Lord, if you've come to know him, you know his character, right? You know that he's wise. You know that he's good. You know that. Obey his word. Also, you know, there's the issue of abuse, a real problem. You know, of course, you know, love is not coercive. It's not manipulative. If anyone is forced to have sex, even in marriage, it's wicked. Amen? It's wicked. If it is physical coercion or psychological manipulation, it's satanic. The lover cannot force the beloved. If the lover forces the beloved, it's rape. The the, the lover is not being loved in return. You get it? They're not. They're pleasing themselves by way of exercising power over another. Okay? So in reality, there is no beloved. Forced love is not love. It's evil. And so those who are abused for sex, they should get help. They should take refuge away from their abuser. Okay? So if you believe that you're being abused, and I know that everybody has their way of defining these things, but if you're really being abused, please, please come see the leadership at Calvary Chapel. We will help you. We'll do our best to help you. It needs to be addressed, okay? Let me finish with this. If you would, why don't you stand? I'm going to read a passage of Scripture to you. It just happens to come from the same book. It's 1 Corinthians 13. You're all familiar. I'd like you to hear it again, because it should be the prevailing motive and and context of what we've been talking about. Paul says, love is patient. Love is kind. 
It does not envy, it does not boast, it is not proud. It does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking, it is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails. And we all say what? Yeah. Now, I realize that, 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 that much of this may be new to a number of you. So if you have questions, if you have concerns, um, if, I've been, um, if I've offended you, um, please have the maturity to come talk with me and uh, we'll get down to the nitty-gritty, okay? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, you invented marriage. You designed the way that it is to function, and sex is a big deal, and it should be, it should be wonderful. But Lord, we're the ones that complicate it. Our sin complicates it. And so I pray, Lord, for the marriages of our church, that together couples would be humble, that their hearts would be for their spouse in love and submission, in honor and respect. And Lord, that with their bodies, they could fulfill one another. Lord, where there's disagreement, where there's hostility, where there's manipulation and frustration, I pray that they would repent, that they would humble themselves, Lord, and they would repair the damage that they've done. And Lord, I pray for all of us as we continue on in the discipleship hour, hearing from others who have worked out practically so many of these challenging things, Lord, that their experience would encourage us in our walk with you and, Lord, our walk with our spouse. Lord, you desire that we be heirs together of the grace of life. Help us to achieve that for your glory and for the blessing of our spouse. Lord, we love you. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.